0: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers.
1: This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support
0: and colleagues working in related professions.
2: We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we
1: explore contemporary issues
3: with a focus at the local,
1: national and global levels.
3: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McLanahan, and today my guests and I will be exploring the relationship between substance use and domestic abuse and I'm very pleased to be joined by three fantastic contributors for the discussion. They are Dr Sarah Fox from Manchester Metropolitan University, Professor Sarah Galvani also from Manchester Metropolitan University and Dr Wolf Livingston from Wrexham Glindor University. Sarah, Sarah and Wolf, how are you all doing? Are you well? Wolf first, are you well?
0: I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for um, giving us this opportunity, Andy.
3: Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Sarah Galvani?
2: Very well. I'd rather be out in the garden, though, Um, not doing any work at all.
3: Yes, yes. You have some nice sun. You look like you've been in the garden yeah I have <laughs> yeah it's good it's good it's good and Sarah Fox
1: I'm very well thank you and would also very much like to be outside <laughs> yes
3: I have um I'm recording this we are having wonderful weather but I'm sitting with the blinds closed and the curtains drawn because I am obsessed with the audio quality um so that's my sacrifice um just so the listeners know where everybody is Sarah Fox
2: whereabouts are you
1: I am in Glossop in the Peak District about 40 minutes from Manchester
2: wonderful Sarah Galvani I'm in a little village called Woodford Hulse, which is on the border of Northamptonshire, Oxfordshire and Warwickshire. Wonderful. And Wolf?
0: Um Yeah, I'm in a small village called Trigarth in North Wales, about 10 miles from Snowdon.
3: OK, you're not in Wrexham then, is that right? No, not
0: at all. No, The, op- the, opposite, the opposite part of the, the North Wales coast oh, to okay, Wrexham. OK,
3: OK. I am no football fan, but when I hear Wrexham, I'm always reminded of, there was, I think, A momentous uh, victory in the FA Cup third round in 1992 where they beat Arsenal 2-1 and I didn't get it at the time I was only nine but I remember my dad who'd spent quite a bit of time in Wales being incredibly excited so yes that's that's what kind of pinged in my head as soon as I saw Rex and Wolf. Um, Great well listen in today's episode uh, we're talking about domestic abuse and substance use and In January, there was an episode of Let's Talk Social Work where we explored domestic abuse and we looked at the social work response to support victims and survivors of abuse, as well as the role that social workers play in working with perpetrators of domestic abuse. And it was a really great episode and I'd urge any listeners to check that one out as well. But uh, as I just explained, we're looking today at domestic abuse and substance use. Before we get into the discussion uh, fully, it'd be really helpful if we could talk about just what domestic abuse is and the various forms that it can take.
1: Before talking about what it is, I think it's important to talk about the language and um, because language is often used interchangeably um, with terms like domestic abuse, domestic violence, um, and that's kind of referring to current um, or ex-partners, family members or car- carers. Um, but then you, in the literature, you also see spousal abuse, spousal violence, intimate partner abuse, intimate partner violence, and um, which is more related to current or ex-partners. Um, and there's also, you know, when talking about abuse versus violence, I prefer to use. And I know a lot of, um, a lot of people, a lot of agencies prefer to use, um, abuse because it covers the non-physical aspects. Um, and I think when we think about violence, we tend to think of hitting, punching, etc., and um, which can impact how victims and survivors perceive their experiences and potentially report um, or seek support as well. Um, So the term abuse refers to physical and sexual experience of of abuse as well as um, coercive control, psychological and emotional abuse, financial or economic abuse, harassment and stalking and online and digital abuse which is Um, coming up more and more. So I think when we're talking about domestic abuse, we have to make sure that we're not just focused on the, the physical aspects.
3: Yeah, I mean, Sarah, the issue of coercive control, that's an issue that's come much more to the public's attention in in recent years. Uh, That has a really significant impact on on victims.
1: Yeah, and it's now an offence as well. Um, And I think when we think about coercive control, just to kind of define what it is, it's a a pattern of intimidation, um, isolation and control. Um, often with the use or threat of physical or sexual violence or other forms of abuse as well. So, yeah, when we're thinking and when we're talking about domestic abuse, and um, coercive control is something that's come to the forefront a bit more now.
3: Thank you, Sarah. That's wonderful to have that quick scene setting. In terms of problematic substance use, um, I'd really be keen to talk about that so people understand just what that is, you know, people will have different ideas when they hear the term problematic substance use. So when we're talking about that from a social work perspective, what do we mean?
2: So um, as with domestic abuse, the language of uh, problematic substance use um, and other terms like substance abuse, substance misuse, um, other, there's plenty of them out there. um, They're all... um, that they, they can be very confusing for people and people don't know what to use. And actually, um, of recent years, there's been much more of a push to talk about substance use and particularly from um, people with lived experience of substance use, because one person's problematic substance use, where substance use is causing some kind of problem in their life, whether that's kind of physical or mental, emotional, financial, family problems, work problems. Um, You know, what's problematic for one person isn't going to be for another. So we get into all sorts of strange definitions. But I think the main thing is to be aware that with substance use in itself, generally that's considered to be a use of substances that isn't creating problems for 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 in the person's life at all or for anyone around them. Whereas problematic substance use is where you kind of get into you know potential problems around you know health and and well being and and issues around um, social care.
3: So when we're talking about substance use, so that can be alcohol, that can be any illegal drugs that can be narcotics
2: yeah basically any of the above um alcohol licit and illicit drugs um and um yeah i mean when we when we talk about substance use and I think Wolf um, will will probably agree with me here. We very clearly talk about substances. People often talk about alcohol and substances. And and we have very deliberately kind of kept away from that because alcohol is a drug and um, it's the one that causes most Mm. damage in our society. But because of the legal issues, you know, people often view, you know, alcohol and other drugs kind of very differently and they carry different levels of stigma. Um, And, you know, that... That really, we need to kind of move beyond that to a kind of a much clearer understanding that substances involve legal and illegal substances. Um, and that that includes alcohol and, and prescription drugs, too.
0: And I would just add exactly what Sarah says we use this expression, alcohol and other drugs, and it's a very deliberate to tie it up. And within that, we're also sitting the one we could have added to the list that you'd already talked about, of course, was prescription drug use, which is perhaps, you know, the biggest drug use in our society uh, in a funny way. Yes.
3: Yes. Yes. And that's really interesting. I mean, in, Sarah had mentioned the issue and stigma. I, I was kind of brought back to a, a statement. I remember reading an interview with Adrian Childs, the broadcaster, and he was very public about his Um, efforts to reduce the amount of alcohol he was consuming and the line I remember him saying was you know alcohol is so much part of our culture that it's essentially the only drug you have to apologize for not taking such as the normalization of it as a as a substance Um, so talking about the relationship between substance use and domestic abuse is there a discernible relationship are there any substances which tend to be more associated with domestic abuse
2: so um, I would say um, in response to your last question, I'd say no, Um <laughs> I should stop asking two questions
3: at once. It's not helpful. But so that in relation to that, that the, the no is in relation to there is no single substance, which is more closely related to domestic abuse. Is that, is that what you're saying, Sarah?
2: Yes, I am saying that. I think what where it gets a little bit confusing is that we, we know more about some relationships between abuse and domestic abuse and, and substance use than others. Um, and because of the legal and illegal, or illicit and illicit nature of substances, um, you know, we we kind of tend to be maybe a bit more judgmental about you know the relationship you know between one or another than, than another. Um, we know, for example, you know, we've got quite a lot around the relationship between alcohol um, and domestic abuse. Um, we probably lo- know less overall in relation to other substances. Um, But where this comes from is the um, impact that the alcohol or other drugs and or other drugs, um, and I'll come back to that in a sec, has on individuals. Mm -hmm. And each individual responds differently to drugs, whatever they are. Um, So there's a there's a tendency to kind of think oh well you know heroin's bad and and does but heroin's a downer and therefore that's not related to domestic abuse but it's not just about the effect of the drug it's about everything around that from the the purchasing of the drug the environment people are using in or you know the the whole the difficulties around some of the the kind of the the the, the relationships that, that people have to kind of have in order to acquire and to use a drug. So it's it's not a straightforward kind of um, one drug is worse than another, um, because everybody, you know, will, will have a different way of using their drugs, different way of purchasing their drug. Um, and, um, you know, it really depends also on on the combination, I said I'd come back to it, but on poly drug use, for example, it's it's quite unusual mm-hmm. for people just to use one drug alone. Quite often, there will be a number of, of drugs um, or substances rather in play. So I think one of the things we have to do is avoid the more kind of simplistic notions that if, say, for example, a stimulant type of drug or substance might lead to worse violence and abuse, because that's not always the case.
3: But Sarah, just digging a bit deeper into that, it would be overly simplistic to suggest that substance use causes domestic abuse. Can, can yeah. we look into that a bit more? So in terms of the extent to which problematic substance use is a factor in causing domestic abuse, if a social worker encountered a situation where there is both domestic abuse and substance, problematic substance use, it'd be wrong to attribute the domestic abuse to yeah. problematic substance because what
2: we found and what my research many years ago when I was a student and, and starting out doing research um, looked at and, and, you know, there was others that had, had, had done similar work before and, and since um, is that, you know, people are, who are violent and abusive um, are usually like that prior to their use of substances. Uh, it's more often than not. So, in terms of that kind of causal component, what um, we need to be really careful of is that we don't say, "Well, substance use causes domestic um, violence and abuse. We have to be really clear that that's not the case. Uh, we can't blame the substance. We need to you know put blame if we're, if we're in, the, in, the, in the game of blaming. We need to kind of put responsibility, maybe is the better word, where where it's due which is on the person who is being violent and abusive, and that's most often uh, you know, men's violence to, to women, but not always.
3: And then looking at the other side of it, um, to what extent is problematic substance use a response to domestic abuse that's been experienced?
1: I think there are links, there are obviously links between being a victim or a survivor of abuse and using substances. Um, quite often you'll see in literature that this is kind of linked to that using to cope aspect of it. Um, victim survivors using substances to deal with the physical or the emotional impact of abuse. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not that straightforward that you know a woman experiences abuse and therefore goes and uses substances to to um, cope with the impact. I think it's more nuanced um for example in my research um i had women say they used to help with the physical pain um of the abuse so a couple of women saying that it was like an anesthetic almost and um, one woman said and i've got a quote here she said i drank because when he came through the door and battered the shit out of me it wouldn't hurt so much and, um, you know, so some are using substances to deal with the physical pain and in and in anticipation of that abuse. Now, that doesn't mean that the impact of domestic abuse caused the women to use. And, um, you know, some women were already using substances before experiencing this form of, of partner abuse. And um, for many, it was linked to childhood trauma and adversity as well, which I'm sure we're going to touch on. Um but then there's also pleasurable aspects of use too. Um, you know, some of the women I spoke to said that um, they started using substances to have a good time, you know, partying with friends. Um, and then there was an element of mutual and at the start of the relationship to bond or increase pleasure with their partner. Um, but what also came up was the impact that partners had on women's substance use you know women shared with me experiences of their partners controlling what they took or the amount or how um how the women use the substances you know and how how partners or perpetrators used um the drugs and 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 how the women were controlled and how they used it and some quite graphic examples I was given um and some women said that some partners like them to be drunk because they were easier to control some women talked about trying to stop using and the partner bringing alcohol home anyway and one partner told me that uh, one woman told me that her partner would go to the shop and buy her a bottle of wine after a physical assault as a way of making uh, making up and apologizing so if we think of the cycle of abuse and how substance also comes into play there um. And also women's use was tied into their partners providing them with substances. Um, for the woman that I spoke to, it was, it was especially in relation to drugs. Um, you know, one woman talked about being in relationships specifically with drug dealers as a way for her to be able to get access to drugs. Um, another woman uh, in particular told about, um, talked about her partner supplying them with drugs and that there was also almost a sense of impunity. Then you know that the perpetrators, the partners, could control them physically and sexually abuse the women because they were using. You know that they, they had that kind of sense of control and that impunity of oh well, you're a substance user, you're using these drugs, you're a drug user, therefore, um, I have all of this control and no repercussions for that. Um, but I think it's also important to remember uh, for many for ve- many uh, victims during times of of turmoil of experiences of abuse substances may be the only constant that they have in their lives um, and that they can depend on and I have a, a quote here from one woman who said to me um, you know, she had talked about her experiences with abuse and in and out of this abusive relationship and how her, her alcohol use was tied into that. And she said, um, when you've been using the substances for such a long time, it's your comfort, it's your friend. It's what you turn to, whether you're sad, mad or happy. You rely on that substance just to feel normal. She said, I remember when I came to the alcohol service for the first time, I've left the relationship. I had to leave where I live. I had to leave my job. Alcohol was the only thing that I had left. So I think when when we talk about women's use of substances and victims use of substances, it's important that we don't just lean on the using to cope element that they're using to cope, that their substance use and the domestic abuse and substance use is a lot more complex and it's a lot more intertwined than just I experienced abuse. And therefore I'm you know, using substances to deal with the aftermath of that.
0: I just wanted to add that we then see these complexities that sarah 's talked about in other family relationships as well beyond um, um, two adult partners say and and some of the work that um, Sarah Gavano and I have done in bits and pieces around mental health or carers or older people. You also see some of these really complex relationships between um, uh, domestic abuse, coercive behaviour and and, um, alcohol and drug use take place as well. So lots of what Sarah's described can sit in other familial contexts as well. Um, um, And it's probably just really important to remind the wider social work audience of of that. Yes,
3: absolutely. Thank you, Wolf. In terms of looking at the impacts of both problematic substance use and domestic abuse. I have some stats from the Children's Commissioner for England, uh, and these are from 2018, and they estimate that there are over 500,000 children living in households with domestic abuse and substance use in England. You know, is there a correlation between witnessing domestic abuse and problematic substance use as a child and then experiencing those adversities as an adult?
2: Yes, uh, there is. Um, and that's the that's the short, <laughs> quick answer. Um, but there's quite a lot of evidence out there that shows that, um, you know, where children have witnessed uh, domestic abuse um, and substance use, be they singly or, you know, as we're talking about today, kind of in coexisting, um, that that is sort of predisposes them in a sense to to um, being, uh, I mean, I, I guess, I was going to say being involved in relationships or or, or um, as adolescents and as adults, um, where, you know, some types of behavior um, that are actually abusive for the rest of us may be more tolerated by them. And I guess if you think about it, you know, it's that whole normalization thing, isn't it? You know, if you, if you grow up in a household where there are high levels of anger and conflict and, you know, and then domestic abuse too, and ditto in terms of, you know, the the um, substance use of some kind, then, you know, as, as a young kid, you think that's normal. Um, and so, you know, as you develop relationships, you know, through your life and your own relationships outside that of your parents and siblings, you know, that that's normal to you. And you think that everyone else, has that same kind of experience going on at home so it's it's really only and and, and so there's a it's almost like um, a physical tolerance that, that that's built up but it's a physical emotional mental tolerance that's built up um, and you know it's really um, only when someone outside goes you know what that's not all right. And that may be the social worker. It may be a friend. It may be a teacher. And, you know, we can can talk about that a bit more. But it's only when someone else challenges that and says, you know what, that's not okay. that that behavior is not normal. Um, That, you know, sometimes, you know, um, young people and and adults will start to kind of recognize it for what it is. But yes, um, as I say, in short, there's plenty of evidence out there that shows that uh, domestic abuse and and problematic substance use um, can have a real impact on many different aspects um, of people's lives and we're not just talking about you know the the fact that you know a a child that's been exposed to that then might be exposed to that in adolescence and adulthood and that's true that seems there seems to be some data that suggests you know there's something there but obviously uh, you know even if they don't you know um, uh, that they're not a sort of victim to domestic abuse and they don't use substances problematically in their own life the impact of those potential behaviors together and separately on those children are going to have you know um, some kind of um, emotional um, and, and you know, psychological um, negative impact.
3: And just then actually coming back to those childhood experiences though I mean our children who grew up in houses where there is problematic substance abuse are they more likely to experience childhood abuse and neglect?
2: Ooh, now that's a big question.
3: <laughs> is it he broken um, down, or is that can we can we deal with that in
2: one go? No, no, the question's fine. There's not a simple. where is there's sort of a simple-ish answer to the last one. Um, I guess my my answer to this, uh, I don't know what the others think, is not necessarily. Good um, place to start. And I think. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I think that that. Obviously, where there is substance use, which is you know excessive, dependent, problematic, it's it's a it's an alarm bell, and for social workers, it has to be an alarm bell. One, and, and if both are there together, and a social worker has been able to identify that, ask questions, you know, sensitively, etc., etc., and 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 you know, recognise that, then. You know, what's the saying? If you hear hooves, think horses. You, you need to kind of be thinking, okay, what more questions do I need to ask to make sure that they're, you know, whether or not there is abuse and neglect? So I guess the answer is, yes, there is in some cases. Absolutely there is. You know, where there's problematic substance use um, and domestic abuse, um, you know, that, that child will be experiencing abuse and neglect uh, and abuse of different kinds but not in all cases. And so this is why... No,
0: that's really important, isn't yeah, it, Yes.
2: And, and that's why the, 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 the social workers need to be really clear on the questions to ask and the way to ask the questions. Um, and often when we're given sort of questions on our assessment forms and guidance, because you know, social workers can't be experts in flipping everything. So it's just about, you know, using the skills that social workers already have to have conversations, to build relationships and start to unpick that. Not fighting shy of direct questions, but, you know, doing it in in a way that kind of gives more information and doesn't start from a point of presuming that because there's, you know, substance use of some kind and or domestic abuse of some kind, that everything's automatically horrific, because um, that might not be the case.
3: And I'm dead keen to come on to this as a work response very shortly. But before we do, any other takers for the big problematic question wolf did you have any insights you wanted to share
0: no i just think i it's very important to i agree with sarah that we must not think that all substance use and even all quite complex and heavy substance use equates to bad parenting and it's very important to say that although exactly as sarah says on the opposite side of course it has to be like Um, you know, um, a a number of other issues. It has to be something that triggers off a set of questions and dialogue from social workers, but it mustn't be an assumptive dialogue. And I think that's, that's the important thing. It triggers a dialogue off, but not based on an assumption that there's only one outcome of that dialogue, yes?
1: Yeah. um. So I think it's important that we remember that domestic abuse does not cause substance use and substance use does not cause domestic abuse. And also in relation to the impact on children and young people, you know, that living in an environment where there is substance use and or domestic abuse does not equate to and does not cause Later, negative outcomes, and I think it's just quite important that we just keep bringing it back to causality, in that it's it's not causal. There are relationships, but not necessarily causal.
3: And are social workers being adequately trained uh, in relation to substance use and domestic abuse to recognise those uh, r- relationships?
1: So
2: we might be fighting to answer this question, and um, I I long for the day when I'm asked that question. I go, yes, they are. <laughs> But no, and they haven't been for the longest, longest time. And, and um, you know, I think all three of us have, have done work and certainly read work, uh, which goes back decades, decades and decades um, about the paucity of of training for social workers in both substance use and domestic abuse. I think the domestic abuse side has got a bit better actually, and certainly from um, being involved in social work education. I think there's much more now around domestic abuse, certainly from the child's perspective, and certainly from the safeguarding perspective. So I think I think the social work education is doing better on that, um, but um, I, I, I'm not aware of of any research, and it may be there, but I'm not aware of any research recently that has actually looked at what's being taught, um, and 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 how much um, of that. So, I think there is some um, substance use. It's an absolute postcode lottery um you know previously there was about when we did our our research some years ago there was maybe about 11 courses social work education courses um qualifying programs that ran specialist modules on substance use and that was it out of all of the qualifying courses, so um, like myself, I, I chose to go to Hull University. Um, fortunately, they decided they'd have me, um, to, because uh, Larry Harrison was there, who did you know, who put on specialist modules around substance use. So what you'll get often is 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 social workers who are interested in, in working in substance use choosing as best they can uh, which which university to go to. But no, it's not mandated. It's not monitored. Um, it's We're still in very much um, an appalling situation, really, where approximately one third of all social workers qualifying have never had any training on substance use. And another third have had maybe a day usually about the effects. So when it comes to some of the stuff we were saying earlier about asking questions and exploring that you know in an informed way and in the right way and in the right tone using the right language you know we're not even getting to that at all in the vast majority of social workers are not you know being taught how to kind of talk to people about their substance use and it's one of the things that that comes up all the time from social workers in terms of saying oh i don't quite know what what kind of questions to ask and how to go about that
3: if social workers aren't getting that training um You know, it's people are going to come into the field and they're going to have certain positions around substance use um, and they're going to have judgments potentially around parental substance use Um, that may be formed by their own personal experiences. But how important is it that social workers address any potential bias that they might have um, and how can an unchecked bias affect the manner in which a social worker approaches a situation where there is problematic substance use?
0: We, we can kind of paraphrase this in a way. Um, um, what came out of my, my PhD study was a title. You know, essentially, I spent a long time asking social workers where all of their knowledge for alcohol came from and how did it impact on their practice. And um, someone, when asked that question, just said uh, very directly to me, not from a book, which became the title of that study, which kind of summarizes that position. Uh, And I've gone on to do a bit more work about this. And yeah, essentially people carry a a very large amount of what we call personal knowledge as well as professional knowledge into social work practice. And social work writers write about this, and this is a a fairly standard affair. So this will happen whether they've had home experience of domestic abuse or previous drug and alcohol use, all of those kind of things. Uh, And it cuts across all of those topics. And the idea is that we shouldn't try to eliminate that bias because that's not possible. We just carry it with us. It's how we support social workers in practice to understand and recognize that they are perhaps judging the current practice moment against some of all of that stuff they're carrying forward with them into their practice. And as long as they do that, and the key word is consciously, as long as they're doing that consciously consciously, uh, and to some degree transparently, then it's potentially not dangerous because it's what we all do, Andy, every single yeah. one of yeah. us. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So so I think, you know, one of the things it, it's it's um there are individual experiences. And I remember teaching um years ago at Birmingham University, some some students, and one of whom had um I'm sure there was more than more than her, but but there's one particular student clearly had um experience of parents. Um that, that use substances and was very very resistant to you know having any other view and learning anything else so I think in a way you know the 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 job in a way of social work education and social workers themselves is to kind of take stock of what their biases are or what their experiences are and ask themselves how is this going to affect kind of my attitudes um, towards working with someone because often what you'll see and and we often see it don't we whether it's kind of Russell brand in the media or, you know, so there's a one way they've got out of alcohol and drugs one way. And and that's the way that it has to be. Mm. And, and, you know, Different people sure. have different experiences of using, of changing their their yeah. substance use, so, or changing their response to yeah. domestic abuse. And, and, yeah. and you know, um, yeah. so.
0: Yeah, so sorry, Sarah. I was just going to say, just like um, Sarah Fox's examples of domestic abuse, I, I can remember word for word one quote um, interviewing a woman who, who was talking to me about a case, and she said, I knew they were an alcoholic. That was her choice of words. And I said, Why? Because she looked like my mother. In other words, her mother was an alcoholic and everyone she ever worked with was automatically then compared to her mother, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that is the that is the the um the experiences as well as Wolf says, bias, experiences It's probably a nicer word, but yeah, that 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 we bring to it. But that's the same with lots of things, our our, our political persuasions and, and and so it's not I mean, it's, it's important, obviously, when you've got safeguarding issues because, or, you know, in the case of mental health, you know, the deprivation of someone's liberty because obviously the implications of, of of those experiences or that potential bias is you know life changing and can be life shattering. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really important to address that. But but it across the board, it's really important. And any good social work course should be doing a lot of that reflection and 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 reflexive practice and and. I think most of them most of them do but we have to really kind of key into that as social workers when it comes to some of these issues where there's a huge amount of stigma.
0: I think I would add and I don't know what Sarah Fox would add but we have more and more people coming into social workers social workers and we've got a lot more people coming with lived experience and all the rest of it and we have to remember that those that have got prior experience of domestic abuse when they're then see it, revisiting that in practice will be invited into some pretty rapid emotional spaces so it also requires social workers to be emotionally intelligent at those moments about how those experiences are triggering off feelings from them from from, from from previous, I would have thought.
1: I think there's something around that stigma as well. I think from the women that I spoke to, it was quite interesting. They picked up and they felt that there was almost they felt stigmatized and um by by many social workers. This is nothing in social workers at all because we know that it's you know education and training and, and awareness of the impact of different drugs and and things like that. But women in particular and um, who were mothers felt very judged and very stigmatized, and they found that. The workers that they could identify with were those that kind of gave um, or kind of, I think the women had said that, you know, it's clear that that worker has had experience themselves in terms of how they spoke to me and how they acknowledge my experiences.
3: Thank you, Sarah. So in terms of how social workers should respond to safeguard children in circumstances where there is problematic uh, substance use and domestic abuse, I mean, I imagine children affected um, may be very afraid and and find it very difficult to speak up. What are the steps needed to be taken um, to help a child feel safe enough to discuss the issues that they're witnessing?
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of children and uh, safeguarding, I think there's there's a whole bunch of things that 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 we can do to make sure that children feel safe to be able to talk about um, what might be going on for them. Because one of the things that that we know is because uh, of the stigma and stereotype around both substance use and domestic abuse children are often told to keep things secret and don't be mentioning this outside of the house and don't be telling your friends and when you get to school you mustn't be saying anything Um, so children are often told you know ahead of time to to keep things a secret and will feel very disloyal if they do anything else and certainly if there's any trouble where the trouble means actually you know help and support is being offered but you know that can be trouble because now the authorities know so you know kids are really often put in a really difficult situation of of kind of knowing or sensing that that this isn't right sometimes um and but not being able to to talk about it, or feeling very upset or feeling to blame so if you think about that, that kind of, you know, situation for a child, then getting a child to talk and to um, think about, um, you know, what who they can and can't tell is about creating a safe environment for that child. And, and, and that's easier said than done. That safe environment might be school, it might be a grandparent's house, it might be a neighbour's or a friend's house, um, but somewhere where, you know, their needs, both physical and psychological needs, are met. So it, there's something about that safe environment. That's something that social workers, you know, can think about and how they might explore that where there's a child and um, a family that, um, you know, is, is um, you know, experiencing substance use and, and, and domestic abuse. I think one of the other aspects is, is about education you know kids are kids are hypersensitive kids know stuff is going on and we often hear about kids uh, or parents saying about their substance use well the kids didn't know about it particularly in terms of illicit drugs because I always used in the bathroom or I always went away to my bedroom but kids know because kids all say well mummy looked funny or talked funny or or daddy behaved like this and fell asleep in the chair for hours and, and wouldn't answer me and you know so kids are hypersensitive even if they don't know what's going on. So knowing about what's going on doesn't expose them to, to um, sort of a greater risk of their own use. What education does is helps them helps them make sense of what they already know. And, and particularly when that education is combined with, you know, um, healthy relationships. What is a healthy relationship and what is a healthy use of substances? Um, you know where it's not all you know this is bad we must be kept secret it's about you know the the kids need to know about um the nuances of relationships and healthy relationships and and they know that as i say they know that already because they're, they're really sensitive to that
3: can i ask about um we, we've we've talked a couple of times we've touched on the questions that social workers should be asking um but we haven't actually delved into it we can talk about the questions that social workers should be asking in relation to working with children, but also the questions that social workers should be asking when they're conducting their assessments with uh, victims and with perpetrators.
1: Yeah, I think because I was going to follow up on what Sarah, Sarah Gavani said um, in terms of how we respond to children. Obviously, it's vital that you know, child protection is at the forefront, but it's also about how we create a space for victims um, to feel safe, to speak about their experiences of, as well, because... With with women, especially women who use substances, you know there is this massive fear of social social work because they're so afraid that their children are going to take get taken away from them, um and there's also those feelings of shame, the feelings of stigma. Stigma is a real huge barrier to accessing um support for women who experience domestic abuse or substance abuse. Never mind when they're combined, and um, so I think it's really important that we ensure that you know there's a there's a while there's like for creating a safe space for children, that we also create a safe space for victims, um, to be able to talk about their experiences and that their needs are also are also met, um, and where they feel heard and and they don't feel judged and um, for saying, you know, I'm a drug using mum and I'm in this relationship and I love him and I don't want to leave, but this is happening. You know, we need to make sure that, um you know there's an acknowledgement of of their experiences an acknowledgement of their fears um,
2: so on the one hand that you you have this kind of situation where um you know social workers are are, are are in a situation where um you have if you if you take care of the parent and particularly the the parent who's the victim usually the woman but not always um then you know protecting and helping to protect uh you know that parent can help protect the child and i think sometimes that's overlooked and it's either right we'll protect the parent and, and not worry about the child or we'll check we'll protect the child and not, and not think about the parent and, and and i think what sarah fox has said so nicely it's about it's about safety for everyone now obviously there comes a point for social workers when you know if um that any work that's done with a parent isn't working, then we have to think of of the impact on the negative, potential negative impact on the kids and, and the time span. And this is where it becomes a really tricky one, is that, you know, you can't leave kids there for ever where there's evidence that they're being harmed you know in the hope that things might change for the parents but my argument has always been you've got to try the support for the parents first before anything kind of serious then happens in terms of you know taking the children out of the home.
3: Does that involve working with the perpetrator?
2: Yes it can do really and and I think this is and this this is the catch 22 really because and it takes us back to your earlier question around education and training you know that that social workers need to be supported in order to understand you know how to ask questions with perpetrators and victims and children And, and and they need that support to do that themselves but also the support to know when to refer on to specialists So it's about exploring enough to know, uh oh, this is beyond my expertise and I need to refer or actually this is something that I can work with the perpetrator and the victim and the child on. And at the moment, I'm not at all convinced that we're in a situation in terms of social work education in relation to substance use and domestic abuse and the relationship between the two where that's the case. Um, So in um, a guide that that we've produced for Basra, there's some example questions um, there in terms of how to talk uh, to perpetrators and how to talk to victims. And this is taken from, um, it's a classic toolkit now, the first of its kind, it uh, it looks like it's dated because it comes from 2007. But the principles and the questions are exactly the same. So it's about sort of not saying, you know, are you violent and abusive when you've been using? It's about saying, you know, how has your alcohol and drug use affected your relationships with, you, with your partner and your family? it's about so you're still asking the questions but you know you're, you're not doing the things you know where the people are immediately going to dig their heels in and get defensive and go well no of course not um and and you know then they're oh well they lie to you you know and it's a horrible vicious circle so if you ask questions in the right way the right questions in the right way you're more likely to come out sort of at the end of it with a much better scenario for everybody and and you know and similarly for victims you know you're asking a about whether you know one of the one of the examples that we've put in the pocket guide is about some people who find that the use of drugs and alcohol can help them cope with the abuse. And is that is that the the case for you? And as I say, this is a really difficult one, because if it's a a woman who's a mother of a child, then Sarah says that people are going to be really defensive. The minute they answer that question, they're just scared that the bells and whistles are coming in and the children are going to be whipped away. So, you know, there's a lot of work and thinking and reflection that needs to go on in terms of asking those questions. But this is what social workers do, you know, all the time.
3: And just so social workers can find those guides, um, because these are fantastic resources, uh, I'll link them in the show notes, but the first is Substance Use and Domestic Abuse, Essential Information for Social Workers, and that's been produced by BASWA and Manchester Metropolitan University as part of the BASWA Special Interest Group on Alcohol and Other Drugs, isn't that correct?
2: Yes, that's right, Um, and and Wolf um, chairs that group.
3: The second guide, Pocket Guide, There's Pocket Guide on Alcohol and Other Drugs. Is that right, Sarah? Is that what you mentioned?
2: Yes. So, um, Wolf, I don't know whether you want to talk a little bit more maybe about that that series of Pocket Guides.
0: Just very briefly, they're available on the BASWA website um, and, and people just need to go through the special interest groups, find the one that's on alcohol and other drugs. Um, yes, there's the, the, the ones that uh, both Sarah's um, and, and have, have done with oh. uh, uh, Manchester and, and Baswa about domestic abuse. We've got a, a refreshed guide of a very original, the first one that Sarah ever did. So we keep refreshing that, which is the general guide for social workers. And as Sarah says, that's got some of the general questions that social workers should be exploring about um, um uh, substance use with with individuals and then there's a number of other guides that sit alongside this there's a mental health one there's one about um um uh, the first thousand days of a child's life is one of the more recent ones we've done and this one's about older people and and so on and so forth Andy so there's there's, there's about seven or 8 there they're all together in in one form or another
3: fantastic and I'll include links in the show notes so listeners can find those So we've spoken quite a lot about the lack of resourcing and the lack of training for social workers to understand the complexities of the relationships, the relationship between problematic substance use and domestic abuse. But I want to talk at a higher level, I want to talk about multi-agency working. Are the systems in place to allow various agencies to collaborate and properly support victims um, of domestic abuse?
0: Okay, so I I, I think um, the response to this question is really interesting because there's been a lot of work what i would suggest takes place locally between agencies. so i think there's in some regional area you can see a lot of particular arrangements they've been around for quite a long time. you know they social workers are very familiar with some of these. they could be around multi-agency protection arrangements. they they can be around safeguarding systems and set up and they can even include protocols and, and or maps of case referrals and stuff. but in itself that's not enough without the two other things happening. And, and, and the two things that happen are, are kind of, if that's the, the middle level, um, then the, the two things that really need to happen are at either of the other levels. And perhaps there's less of those. So one of the big problem areas that we have is that this stuff is fragmented in government departments, whether that's England, Scotland or Wales. Um, in other words, we've got an element of this conversation which is about crime and that sits with the Home Office, but some of this is about social care and that sits with a different department. Some of this is about education and schools. Some of this is about health. Um, and those departments really have to come together much more um, uh, and um, they have to have a balanced conversation that reflects the one that we've been trying to have today. So that's really important. And it's not just dominating by one agenda. Sometimes we get substance use, for example, being dominated by either a, a crime agenda or we get it suddenly dominated by a health agenda. Um, but we don't necessarily bring in the social care agenda and we don't bring in the educational the prevention agenda enough. So you get dominant discourses at government levels and it needs to be far more joined up.
3: And Wolf, can I just ask, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong because I, I don't understand, I'm not entirely sure of the time frames on this. There are plans to introduce uh, an office of domestic abuse commissioner um, in England, isn't that correct? Would that not tie up some of those issues that you've been flagging up as problematic?
0: You, you might argue so, but it might also be the thing that keeps contributing to it. So we have a child commissioner, we have a we have a domestic abuse commissioner. You know, there's this talk of reintroducing a drugs mm-hmm. czar again in England, particularly. Okay. So we actually get these. So we're refragmenting in many ways. And I think, you know, one of the things that the Welsh government wanted to do, and it's just as an example, we really wanted to continue to focus on a well-being agenda and trying to pull all these things together for everyone. So there are, there might be different ways of doing this at a government level rather than always just seeing it devolved and devolved with the budget and devolved with the ministers. Um, but I also wanted to... I, say Andy that none of this then also works without practitioners getting their hands dirty as well and they've got to come out of their silos so individual practitioners have got to be prepared to walk across the road to another agency sit down and talk to another agency get to know them get to share with them because if there isn't any glue between half a dozen um, individual practitioners it also doesn't go anywhere you can have as much strategy and or local partnership as you're working but actually we have to and that includes Social workers, we've got to get out of our silo and out of our office. We've got to go meet the probation officer across the road. We've got to go down to to, to Women's Aid, whatever it is. Um, go to the local third sector drug agency, and, and not think that we can just do this merely by referral and a piece of paper. Um, and it requires individuals to work together at that level as well i can see i can see sarah nodding lots yes so so, so we, we really need to get this stuff right at all three levels uh, uh, and really it, it's the middle stuff and people think that once they've set that up that it's the job done well I, I, not at all i'm afraid yes
3: <laughs> well can i push you wolf can i push you a question i like to ask often no matter what we're talking about so subject specific i'll ask someone if you were Home Secretary, if you were Education Secretary. So the question has to be actually to you if you were Prime Minister, because we are saying this is broken across, justice, uh, health, social care, uh, education. So what is, that at the highest level, do you have a, a solution? Do you have something that you can...?
0: No, but I know the place we need to start from. Um, and, and I can say it in the current context of a government that perpetually at the moment keeps talking about levelling up. You know, let's it. This needs to start with conversations about poverty and social justice. Forget all these separate things that we're talking about. We need a society that is more just just socially, just economically, educationally. And and, and all of the, those, are the, I can tell you, those are the starting places and and, and they have to be seriously addressed.
2: And I think you know, in in, in policy terms, what we hear um, is we, they don't like to talk about poverty, <laughs> but it, it's health inequalities. Yes, and 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 that's the language. It's those health inequalities um that that need to be addressed and I think we've got it's got to move beyond party politics it's got to be you know a cross-party commitment yeah. and it's the same geographically and culturally uh, you know I it reminds me of the, of, of the comment you made earlier about Adrian Childs you know he's a, he's a white man drinking in a particular cultural context and actually there's a lot of different cultures and often it's the people who are more marginalized and the communities that are more marginalized that are poorer and suffer the greater health inequalities. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to come together here.
1: Can I just come back to what Wolf was saying about multi-agency working in the silos? Absolutely. I think it's also very important that we bring in the voices of and the experiences of people who are going through substance use, domestic abuse, who are engaging or not engaging in services because of the siloed nature. And my research was all around um, women's access to support when they experience substance use and domestic abuse and what they did in that situation, how they navigated a support system that is so siloed. And one thing that came from it is that it was an either or. You know, you had women who had histories of, and or current experiences of domestic abuse, coercive control within that as well, around their substance use, who are also using drugs and/or alcohol um, quite problematically, and not knowing where to go or what to do with that, firstly, very afraid that their children are going to get taken off them, not sure who they could and should speak to because of that. And then in wanting to get access to domestic abuse support not being able to because they were using substances and they were using substances problematically. So one woman sticks to mind and I don't know if I'll ever forget her. She said that, you know, she she was onto a um, domestic abuse helpline of some sorts, um, wanted uh, to escape, um, you know, needed refuge space. And what she said was, she said that, that they said to me, if you come, you can't drink. And this woman was drinking something like a bottle of vodka a day. You know, she couldn't just stop, you know, physically, you know, in terms of medically, it would not have been a good idea for her to just stop using substances or stop using alcohol. And she said, I couldn't just stop. So I had no choice. You know, she kind of ended up staying in the in the, in the the house that she was in with the abusive partner because she thought she had nowhere else to go. So I feel like I'm very, I'm very passionate about this. Abstinence should not be a bargaining chip for safety. And I think it's important when we talk about multi-agency work, and I think it goes back to what Wolf was saying about, you know, locally on the ground, practitioners speaking to each other, domestic abuse agencies and substance use agencies speaking to each other about some coordinated, joined up way of working and how they can support um, victims who, who experience both issues.
3: What is that abstinence approach? What's that rooted in? Why is it seen as a, as a necessity for some services?
2: I mean, for me, it's about it's about ignorance, really. <laughs> it's about um, uh, assuming that if someone isn't using uh, alcohol or other drugs, that um, therefore they're going to be, you know, a great parent or um, a non-abusive partner. Or I think it's it's just, you know, it's a genuine ignorance. Um, you know, for, for for some people, abstinence will help. For others. They weren't a great parent, actually, before the substance use, um, and particularly for perpetrators of domestic abuse, you know. So, so you know, I think I think there's a real ignorance and an assumption, um, and and that's what's left to, le- led to things like you know testing hair, urine samples, and all this kind of thing that you know is is to catch to catch the parent, usually meaning the mother, out um, because they might be lying to me about their substance use. This is not about judging the substance use it's about judging the behavior and judging as in making judgments, good judgments based on good assessments. And, and as I've said before, and, and I do tend to repeat it, it's about asking the right questions in the right way. But that needs support for the social worker, it needs education and, and, and training. Um, but you know, it, 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 without those kind of things in place, it can go horribly wrong and people will just assume abstinence means the kids are gonna be okay. That's not right. You know, abstinence means the victim's going to be okay, adult and child. And that's not the case.
0: It it kind of links back right to your starting point, Sandy. You you started with this this notion that actually just if the drugs and alcohol have stopped, everything will be all right. Well, no, the relationship's far more complicated, as we've discussed through the whole podcast. And therefore, there's more than, you know more than abstinence is required at some level and sometimes not abstinence is required but something else is required to change So,
3: Thank you. Sarah, Sarah Wolf this has been a fantastic discussion I hope I've asked the right questions I know there's an awful lot more I wanted to ask and we haven't had time to cover thanks for sharing, thanks for taking part
2: Very welcome, thanks for asking us Very welcome
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure